Grace, mercy, and peace to you in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's message is from the Gospel reading, John chapter 6, verses 22 and through 35, with specific emphasis on Jesus' words in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The context of the passage is relevant to our understanding. At the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus removes himself from Jerusalem to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to a remote place, and there feeds 5,000 men and their families with just five barley loaves and two fish, ending up with leftover fragments besides. After this, Jesus crosses back over the sea to Capernaum, which is where we find him in our text. This is the beginning of Jesus' bread of life discourse in the book of John. In this discourse, Jesus is bold to publicly identify himself as the bread of heaven, the bread of God, and even the bread of life. So we have this miraculous event, the feeding of the 5,000, leading to this stupendous claim. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to go back and say this ultimately leads him to publicly uh, to make the startling claim in verse 53 that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So we have this miraculous event, the feeding of the 5,000. And at the end, we have this statement of his that says that unless you drink his blood, eat, drink his blood and eat his flesh, you have no life in you. So our text right here is a segue between what is physical and what is material. I'm going to start. It's a segue between what is material and what is spiritual. In our text, Jesus takes us from the physical bread which feeds us in body and sustains us to the true bread of heaven. And we need to pay attention to the transition because it's well and good that people receive from God the things they need for this life. And because the people who were there on the other side of the Sea of Galilee with him were in need, Jesus feeds them. This miraculous event was the subject of our text and Pastor Beck's sermon two weeks ago, the feeding of the multitude, whereby Jesus displayed his divine authority by producing such plenty from nothing. But Jesus makes it very clear. While it is good that we should receive God's gifts here on earth, it is more important that we have the gift of eternal life. After all, Jesus does not promise his faithful followers an easy and prosperous life on this earth, at least not by worldly standards. He only promises us a fulfilling and eternal life. All three synoptic gospels report Jesus warning his disciples that they will suffer persecution. And later in this book of John, in chapter 15, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A servant is not greater than his master, he says. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now to be not of the world and chosen out of the world is to be set apart, that is, holy. And we Christians are certainly that. With this in mind, what can be said of the prosperity gospel? Preachers who would have us to believe that we can follow Christ to health and wealth. What will their followers be left with after they gain everything they've ever desired on earth? 
only to find that they've been duped into neglecting their eternal home. These so-called prosperity gospel preachers encourage their followers to create an idol out of the one true God who promises them better gifts than earthly riches. Jesus exhorts us in our text here, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Besides, where will faith in Christ go when riches and well-being fail to materialize? What of those who continue to suffer want and privation? There are needy people in this world, and these, our neighbors, need help. As Christians, we should certainly help them. Our vocation as neighbor to these people binds us to such duty to relieve their pain and suffering. But again, if we do so without a word of Jesus' gospel and his saving grace, we have not done our duty by them, no matter how much bread we stuff into their mouths. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Let's go back to the, take a closer look at the beginning of the chapter because it really sets the whole thing up. In relating the feeding of the 5,000, John notes the proximity of the event to the Passover, and this prompts Jesus to ask his disciples where they are to obtain bread enough for so many. The setting for this meal, nourishing, fulfilling, and more than enough for everyone, is within the context of the Jewish Passover, alluding to the salvation of Israel. Note also that as Moses took the people out into the wilderness, so Jesus has taken these people to a desolate place, across the water even, somewhat reminiscent of the Red Sea. And as the ancient Israelites were fed on manna in the wilderness, Jesus feeds this multitude on a few loaves and a couple of fish. All these things intend to orient our minds to the promises of God in the Old Testament, the source of salvation, and the consolation of Israel. And now, our text Jesus crosses back over the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. When the crowd find him there, he accuses them of seeking him, desiring only more bread that fills their bellies. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, he says, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. They know who he's talking about here, this Son of Man, upon whom God the Father has set his seal, as Jesus reminds them right there in verse 27. Indeed, he is the Christ himself. The Israelites and Pharisees have been waiting for this one for a long time now. They, strut, they study Scripture diligently so they will know the signs of his arrival, yet they are misreading the Scriptures and missing those signs. Our Jewish friends and neighbors are still misreading the scriptures and missing those signs. Do we not, as Christians, pity them? I do. I have friends that are in this situation. They are good people who want to be good and want to do better, but they are no better off than those who have no belief at all. I was once one of them, without a hope in this world. We keep them in our prayers that all who do not know Christ may come to know and to believe as the Holy Spirit has prompted us. Why is it that they do not believe? It's because they do not read Scripture. But this is not the case with the Pharisees with whom Jesus is dealing. 
He even says to them in chapter 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So what is it then? Is it intellectual pride? Are there's brilliant legalistic minds that can read meaning into every jot and tittle, but fail to understand the true meaning of scripture itself? Are they unable to see the forest for the trees? This, may be so, this must be so. They're relying on the strength of their own reason. Now they, these Pharisees, they are the religious authority here. And it's as if they believe that the Messiah will have come only after they said he has come. Thinking back to the way the prophet Samuel recognized young David while King Saul was still on the throne. As the religious authority in Israel, Samuel anointed David. And no doubt, this is the pattern that these Pharisees are following. But remember, it was the voice of the Lord that came to Samuel and revealed him to be the next king of Israel. With this in mind, the Pharisees should be reading the scripture and praying that when the Messiah comes, they will recognize him. Instead, they stand astride the gateway of interpreting scripture in the manner that they see fit. Search and see for yourselves, they say. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. But imagine how Jesus' statement, his claim to be the very Messiah, must astound them. It's to them no different than if someone were to come in here and claim to be the second coming. And we shouldn't be uncautious to think that we would be any more believing than these learned men if such a thing were to happen right now. Without the working of the Holy Spirit, none of us could know and believe. Remember the catechism in the third article of the creed? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, etc. Now, even as unbelieving as these men are, they don't shut him out completely, at least not yet. It's as if they aren't sure of what he has just said. But in case he did just now claim to be the Christ, Will he even presume to speak on behalf of God and tell them what they must do to be doing the works of God? This is the work of God, Jesus tells them. Believe in him whom he has sent. That is to say, believe in me, that I am the Christ. Now there is no doubt. Jesus has made the claim. It is undeniable, and it is small wonder that they are shocked. This is not the Messiah that they are looking for. They are looking for a powerful prince, the son of King David, a mighty warrior, a strong defender, who will vanquish their Roman oppressors and liberate their nation Israel. From what they can see, this man is not that. But now, let's consider this unbelief of theirs and look at the response. Sure, they are unbelieving, but here is their demand for proof. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What sign? Let's forget about the fact that we, what we've been talking about this whole time is that he just fed 5,000 men and their families from practically nothing. To this point in John's gospel, Jesus has identified Nathanael while he was sitting beneath the fig tree, turned water into wine, looked into a woman's heart as she drew water from a well and told her everything that she ever did. He's healed an official son, made a lame man to walk, walked on water, and received the testimony of John the Baptist, who they themselves all held to be a prophet. As Jesus reminded them in the previous chapter of John's gospel, 
you sent to John, and he has been, and he has borne witness to the truth. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, the other three gospel accounts record even more miracles than these. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you, they ask. He's been doing nothing but miracles this whole time. We, like Jesus, after he was rejected in Nazareth, marvel at their unbelief. If these Pharisees have not seen these miracles or do not otherwise have knowledge of them, all of them, they certainly know some of them. To be sure, this is the whole reason that they're talking to Jesus in the first place, especially they know this feeding of the 5,000. How is it that they should ask for a sign? It is the result of their unbelief, hardened hearts and that trust in their own reason and strength. We pity them because, as we have already recounted, we know that it is only by the Holy Spirit that we can come to belief and understanding ourselves. Let's continually pray that we should not fall victim to such unbelief and the Holy Spirit would continue to enlighten us by his holy gospel. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. And this is the work of God that we believe in him whom he has sent. So these men in our text will invoke their great prophet Moses, whom they supposed to be the one who gave their forefathers manna from heaven, as related in our Old Testament reading today from the book of Exodus. Of course, we're supposed to ignore the fact of all the grumbling that went on. This bread from heaven did indeed fill their stomachs and sustain them in the wilderness for such time as it did. But if this man before them this Jesus will, will claim to be the Christ, it is reasonable that they should expect him to be able to do the same or better. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, they tell him. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And here Jesus sets them straight. So I want to look closely at the language here because it comes off a little strange in our hearing and it's easy to misread. Jesus says in our text, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It sounds like Jesus is saying, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gave you the bread from heaven. And certainly, this would be true. I mean, right there in Exodus 16, Moses is making it very clear that the Lord is doing all these things. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. When these men demand a sign from Jesus, pointing to Moses and saying, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, Jesus' reply is better understood as, yes, but what matters is not that Moses gave you the bread from heaven, but that my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. I'll acknowledge the J.B. Phillips paraphrase here. A paraphrase is not a translation of the Bible, but it helps us to make this distinction with what Jesus is saying. The distinction is that Moses performed a once upon a time, now completed past action, whereas with Jesus, God is acting in the present, time now. For the bread of, of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Even more, I am the bread of life, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is what we are to believe, that Jesus is the Christ who came down from heaven to reconcile the sinful world to God and to win repentant sinners to eternal life. Again with the Catechism, Luther's take on the second article of the Creed tracks perfectly with today's text. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, 
begotten of the Father from eternity and true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives, and reigns to all eternity. Indeed, this is the work of God, that we believe in him whom he has sent. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the good news, the gospel of Christ, the promise of God to eternity. We pray that he will fill our hearts with belief in these promises, that, we should show, that he should show us our sin, show us our Savior, and keep us looking to him alone as the source of all good things and of our salvation. Keep us in his holy word and give us his precious gifts through the sacraments. He himself has commanded us to pray in this way and has promised to hear us. Amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. Now, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs>